The scripture reading this morning is from 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verses 8 through 17. Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from the following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them <clears throat> so that they may live on their own place and be disturbed no more, and evildoers shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come forth from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house in my name, and I will establish through the throne his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he should be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will punish him with a rod such as mortals use, with blows inflicted by human beings but I will not take my steadfast love from your kingdom. Pardon me. I will not take your steadfast love from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. We are in the middle of November now. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> we are coming up very quickly on our season of Advent at the start of December. Uh, and I would imagine that in years past, as part of this season of Christmas and Advent, at some point in this story, it's likely that you would have heard the name of King David, either from the Messiah being born in Bethlehem, which is called the City of David, or from Jesus being of the line of David or a son of David. David's story intersects with Jesus' story a lot, and particularly at the time of his birth. And so we're taking this month prior to the start of Advent to take a look at this David. Who was he? Why was he so particularly significant? And what does his life and his story have to do not only with Jesus and Israel's story, but with our lives and our story as well? Before we jump into that, uh, let us pray. Lord God, thank you for your presence with us and your promises to us. As we enter your word and seek to understand it, may we let it embrace us for all that we are. 
May we find our story in this story of David. May we celebrate the gifts that you've given us, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, David is a dynamic character. His name is mentioned over a thousand times in the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's more than any other human person in the Bible, even Moses and even Jesus. <laughs> so given that fact, there is no way that we could realistically cover all of his story and everything that the Bible has to say about David in one month. But we can take a look at pieces of his story that tell us something about his life and about his impact on Israel's history. And so we've looked at his early life so far, at his roles as both a shepherd and a warrior. And this week we're going to take a look at David as king. This is the context in which we hear about him most often in scripture. And that our text for this morning that Shirley just read for us is going to show us why. It's one of the most iconic moments in all of the Old Testament. But before we get to this exchange that we just read from 2 Samuel 7, a few major things have happened in the life of David that have set this stage. He's been chosen by God to be Israel's next king, which is part of what we heard about in week one of our series. David was the youngest of eight brothers, who was nothing but a shepherd when the prophet Samuel found him in Bethlehem. But God said, you know, he doesn't look like much, but I've seen his heart. This is the one. And so Samuel anointed David, but he didn't take the king's mantle just yet. Saul was still the king of Israel and was in the middle of fighting his war with the Philistines. And this is the context you'll remember for last week's story, where we heard about David as a warrior facing off against Goliath. He came out of the fields to face down a giant with nothing but a stone. He wasn't powerful in any of the traditional or expected ways, but he knew who he was, and he trusted in a very powerful God. And after he won that fight, uh, which no one in their right mind had expected, right, that was when he got King Saul's full attention. And he also got the attention of Saul's son, uh, Jonathan. Jonathan and David became instant friends after that battle. And we're told even that Jonathan made a covenant with David, and he gave him his own royal robe and armor and weapons. And we can understand in this moment that this is a gesture of the intimate friendship that they shared between the two of them, but it's also a symbolic letting go of all of these markers of Jonathan's inheritance. He's not going to inherit his father's throne. David will but he still hasn't yet. Instead, Saul puts David in charge of his armies because he's now proven himself as a warrior in battle, right? And everywhere David went and fought from that point on, he was successful because God was with him. And so the women of Israel began to sing, Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands, which you can imagine made Saul very happy. <laughs> Now, he was particularly jealous at this point. Um, he ended up offering David his daughter, Michal, in marriage, thinking that he might be so enamored and distracted with this new wife of his that the armies that David was fighting might best him and be done with it. But that didn't happen. David did uh, marry Michal, but 
He continued to be victorious in every battle that he fought, and the people of Israel loved him all the more for it. And eventually, both Jonathan and McCall had to help save David from their father's outright attempts to kill him multiple times. David ends up fleeing from Saul and running away from the city and going into hiding. And many of the rest of the chapters of 1 Samuel are dedicated to his exploits and his battles and his travels and even several of the opportunities that he had to kill Saul, but he didn't take it because he didn't want to touch God's anointed. He knew it wasn't time. And this went on for years and years until both Jonathan and Saul were killed in battle. And David lamented this. You would think it would be a victorious moment, but he truly loved and respected both of these men. And after that, there was another one of Saul's sons that had a short-lived attempt at trying to grab his father's throne. But because God was with David, he eventually came into this throne that God had promised him. And all of the tribes of Israel swore their loyalty to David. He conquered the city of Jerusalem, which became his capital city. And we see, even in this moment of shining glory, David finally brings in the Ark of the Covenant into the city, and there's dancing, and there's celebration, and there's singing. And this is how we get to the start of 2 Samuel chapter 7, where it finally says that the king was settled in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies. So after many, many years of running and fighting, David finally had his throne and his rest, just as God had promised him. And I tell you all this not just to set the stage for this very important moment that's about to take place, but also so that we can be reminded, as we were in our children's message this morning, that God's timing is not always our timing. David was so young when Samuel anointed him to be the next king and found him in his father's fields. He was so young when he was told that he was going to inherit a kingdom and a power that was beyond anything that he could have imagined, but it took years to manifest. He had to wait for it. He had to struggle on a daily basis sometimes to trust that God would make good on this thing that he had promised. And we know based on many of the psalms that David wrote, that this was not easy, especially in those moments when his life was literally in danger because Saul was chasing him down. The words that we hear Jesus speaking years later on the cross were actually written by David in the wilderness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. In another psalm, he wrote, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Many of his psalms are like this. Even for a king, there was pain and there was waiting. Now, there are a lot of ways in which we cannot possibly relate to David's story right? We're not royalty. We have no palaces. No one is handing us a crown or a scepter. That doesn't come anywhere close to real life for us. <laughs> but we do know what it's like to wait. We've waited, you know, not just the 36 days, 36 days for Christmas, <laughs> but we've waited for relationships to come along, for marriages 
for kids. Right? We've waited for healing after diagnoses or after cancer treatments or after surgeries. We've waited for the callback after that interview, right? And then the next one, and then the next one. We do know what it's like to wait in the silent moments of prayer or in the years of longing, we know. That part of David is also, or that part of David's story, I should say, is also part of our story, even though a few of the details are a bit different. (laughs) David also shows us not only that he has to wait, but also how to hold hope in those times of waiting. Even while he asks the Lord how long, he also offers his prayers of confidence. He says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. So David waited and he prayed, and finally he came into this kingdom and this place of rest. God's timing is not our timing. But he did make good in his own time on his promise to David. The funny thing about um, humans, though, is that what happens when we finally get what we've waited for? It's wonderful for a minute, right? (laughs) But then what happens? We start looking for the next thing, right? When I graduated high school, I remember I had spent four years of studying and homework and trying to be a perfect 4.0 student and worked so hard and waited for that diploma. And finally it came, and I spent one night celebrating with my graduating class, and I had one party with my family, and then it was off to college. It was just on to the next thing, right? You've had this kind of experience. The moment we get that job or that promotion feels like a huge victory, and then it's immediately off to the races again. What's the next right thing? What do I need to do next? What's my task? How do I move on to the next step? And what's the question people always get right after they get married? Yeah, when are you going to have kids? Exactly. (laughs) When are you going to have kids? It's the next right thing, right? (laughs) And then it's the second kid and maybe a third or a fourth. And then eventually people start saying, yeah, you might want to slow down. Um, (laughs) But you get the picture, right? It's one thing after another. We always look for what this forward motion is, and we see that not even David is immune to this. As soon as he is in this honored place, and all that God has promised has come to pass, he's finally at rest. He is looking for what to do next. So he says to his prophet Nathan, I'm living in a house of cedar, but the ark of God stays in a tent. So David gets it in his mind that his next thing is to build a temple for God in the city of Jerusalem. And it's hard to tell David's motives here. So on the one hand, it was pretty customary for the kings of the day to build these sort of grand temples in their cities as a sign of their own power. Right? It would have signaled to the rest of the nations about uh, their favor with their God and even their divine right to rule. So having a temple was a status symbol of sorts. But on the other hand, David is now here clearly seeing this discrepancy between his grand palace in Jerusalem and the humbleness of God's ark as it sits in the tent as it always has. 
And God has done so much for David at this point that he's likely wanting to honor God in return by building him this glorious place for him to reside. And as the king, he now has the resources to do this. Or maybe David was just bored and he was looking for a new project. We don't really know for sure what his plan was, but in any case, David proposes this temple, and that sounds fine to Nathan. He says, go and do all that you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. I mean, clearly that had been the case thus far. But then God shows up with a word for Nathan to give to David. And it is unlike anything that any prophet or any king in Israel had heard before. First, God says, what makes you think that I have any desire or need for a house? God has never lived in one place. Not since he brought his people up from out of Egypt. Not once has he asked for a permanent house. Because this thing about God is that he is always on the move. And that he does not get to be contained. But then, after this slight reprimand on David's assumptions, God issues this most stunning reversal. Uh, David wanted to build God a house. But God says, I'll appoint a place for my people Israel, and the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. So God does allow a temple to be built. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be as a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from Saul. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Some theologians call this the pivotal moment in Israel's national history. And the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says that this is the core foundation for all of Israel's messianic hopes in the years to come. David offered to build God a temple, and instead God promised to build him a dynasty, a kingdom that would last forever. <laughs> a few key things are happening in this moment. God is taking the initiative in David's legacy as a king. He's making a covenant with one particular person, which hasn't been done since the time of Abraham. And the promise that he's making here to David is eternal and unconditional. Each one of these things is no small thing, right? But together, they are extraordinary. God steps up with this monumental promise to David that is entirely of his own prerogative. David did not ask for this. David didn't do anything to earn it. In fact, he's already been given the throne of Israel, again, simply by God's choice, not by any merit of his own. This is entirely God's doing, entirely a gift. And God makes this promise to David alone, which is new for the people of Israel. Years ago, after the Exodus, God had said, I will walk among you and I will be your God and you shall be my people, right? And then all of the promises and the blessings that were packaged in this law of Moses that they were to follow were communal. They were for all the people. But now God chooses one person 
and his descendants to rule. And he says that his love for them will be like that of a father to a son or for a child. So intimate that it's never going to break. Discipline, yes. Removal of love, absolutely not. This kingdom and this relationship will be established forever. Not just through David's lifetime, not just through his son's lifetime, but forever. Always. Unconditionally. That is a huge deal. Can you imagine what David must have been feeling in that moment? Just complete disbelief, amazement, overwhelmed. I mean, his immediate response to this message from God is to pray, and we can tell how in shock he is by the fact that he says, oh, Lord God, nine times, and he calls himself God's servant ten times in one prayer. But that also tells us what kind of king David is. God makes a promise, and David immediately falls on his knees in gratitude. All he can do is receive it. And that's not the posture that we would expect of a king. But maybe that's the point. Maybe that's why David ends up being called Israel's greatest king and a man after God's own heart. Because like any other human, he's not immune to the corruption of power in this place of being king. He will make many, many mistakes in the years to come. But unlike Saul's response to the throne, which was power hunger and paranoia, David always comes back to this posture of a servant, right? He receives God's gifts with open hands, and then he clings not to his own power, but to God's faithfulness and promises. He's a king who puts himself at the mercy of his true king. That's what makes him great. And he rules like that for many, many years. Now, if you know the rest of this story, you know that the irony of the situation, of course, is that David was succeeded by his son Solomon, who did end up building a temple for God. But it didn't take long before David's line was broken. The kingdom split in half. The rulers that came after Solomon had very little interest in God or in keeping his law and being faithful. And eventually, the kingdom of David, this glorious kingdom of Israel, was overcome, first by the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians, and then the Persians, and finally the Romans. Things didn't go quite as expected, right? But all throughout those centuries of occupation and exile, the people of Israel never forgot about God's covenant promise to David. They never stopped waiting for his kingdom to return. And eventually, all of their hopes and dreams came to fruition in a child who was born, who was truly the Son of God, from the line of David, who came announcing that the kingdom of God is at hand. God's timing is not our timing, but he always fulfills his promises sometimes well beyond what we could ask for or imagine. It may not seem at first glance like we have much in common with David, especially in his role as a king. We have no idea what it's like to have that title or that kind of authority, but we can know what it's like to take David's same posture in prayer and in gratitude. Right? We can choose to trust in God 
even when we are waiting or we're unsure of what's coming next. And we can receive what God offers us eternally in the person of Christ, this kingdom he has promised. John Goldingay is a professor at Fuller Seminary, and he writes, Jesus never talks about our establishing God's kingdom or furthering it or building it or extending it. In the Gospels, the only thing we do to God's kingdom are wait for it, see it, enter it, seek it, receive it, inherit it, and declare that it has come. Isn't that amazing? That's all we do. There's no authority or crown required, (laughs) just a promise that is given of God's favor and God's faithfulness, exactly to us like it was to David. So may God help us to see and receive the love that he still offers unconditionally and eternally in his son. Amen. Amen. Our scripture reading today is out of 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 through 17. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be my prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut, cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may live in their own place and be disturbed no more. And evildoers shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come forth from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will punish him with a rod such as mortals use, with blows inflicted by human beings. But I, will, but I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. We are in the middle of November now. Can you believe it? Happy Thanksgiving. (laughs) We are coming up quickly on our season of Advent in just a couple weeks. Um, And I would imagine that at some point in years past during this 
uh, season of Advent and Christmas, you may have heard the name of King David mentioned before as part of that story. Uh, either from the Messiah being born in Bethlehem, which is called the city of David, or about Jesus being a son of David, or from the line of David. Jesus' story interacts with David's story a lot, particularly at the time of his birth. And so we're taking this month prior to Advent to take a look at this David. You know, who was he? Why was he so particularly significant? And what does his life and his story have to do not only with Israel's life and Jesus' story, but also with our lives and our story? Right, so before we get into that, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for drawing us near for reminding us of your greatness and for giving us your word that we might know you. And as we come to encounter you this morning in this story and in David's experience, I just ask that you would open our hearts to receive whatever it is that you have for us. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, David, as you may have noticed so far, is a dynamic character. He's very larger than life in some cases, and he's very human in other cases. But his name is mentioned over a thousand times in the Old and New Testaments. That's more than any other human person, including Moses and Jesus. <laughs> so there's no way that we could realistically cover all of David's life or all of the things that the Bible has to say about him in one month. But we can take a look at pieces of his story that tell us something about his life and who he was and his impact on Israel's history. And so we've looked at his early life so far in this series and at his roles as both a shepherd and a warrior. And this week we're going to talk about David as a king. And this is the context that we hear about him most often in scripture, especially when it comes to Jesus. And our text for this morning that John just read for us is going to show us why. It's one of the most iconic moments in all of the Old Testament. But before we get to that exchange that we read just now from 2 Samuel 7, a few major things have happened in the life of David that have set this stage. So he's been chosen by God to be Israel's next king, which is part of what we heard about in week one. David was the youngest of eight brothers and was nothing but a shepherd, fairly insignificant when the prophet Samuel found him in Bethlehem. But God said to Samuel, he doesn't look like much, but I can see his heart. This is the one. This is the one I choose. And so Samuel anointed David, but he still didn't take the king's mantle just yet. Saul was still the king of Israel and was in the middle of fighting his war with the Philistines. And so this is the context we came to last week, right, where we looked at David as a warrior facing off against Goliath, that classic story. He came out of the fields to fight a giant with nothing but a stone. He wasn't powerful, we saw, in any of the traditional ways, but he knew who he was and he trusted in a powerful God. And after he won that fight, which no one in their right mind would have expected, uh, that's when he got King Saul's full attention. The little guy is not gone. He's around. <laughs> he made it through the battle. So 
Saul pays full attention to David at this point, and so actually does Saul's son, Jonathan. Jonathan and David became instant friends after that battle. And we're told that Jonathan even made a covenant with David and gave him his own royal robe and his weapons and his armor. And I love this exchange because we can see here not only this intimate gesture of friendship, right, this relationship the two of them had between themselves, but it's also this symbolic letting go from Jonathan of these markers of his inheritance. Because Jonathan is not going to be the successor to his father's throne. David will, but he still isn't yet. Instead, at this point in the story, Saul puts David in charge of all of his armies because he's now proven himself as a warrior. And everywhere David went and fought, he was successful because God was with him. We hear that over and over again. God was with David. God was with David. So much so that the women of Israel began to sing, Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands, which you can imagine made Saul particularly happy. No, he became very jealous. Um, he ended up offering David his daughter, Michal, in marriage, thinking that David might become so distracted and enamored with his new wife that, uh, that he would be bested by his enemies in battle, and that would be over with. He wouldn't have to worry about David anymore. Um, but that didn't happen. David did marry Michal, but he continued to be victorious in every single battle that he fought, and the Israelites loved him all the more for it. He was their champion. And eventually, both Jonathan and Michal had to help save David from their father, Saul, who outright attempted to kill him. And David ended up fleeing from Saul and going into hiding. And many chapters of the rest of the book of 1 Samuel are dedicated to David's battles and his travels and his exploits. And even a couple occasions where he himself had a chance to kill Saul, but he chose not to because he didn't want to lay a hand against the Lord's anointed. Saul was still the king. And this went on for years until one day both Jonathan and Saul were killed in battle, which David lamented because as hard as it had been for him, he truly had loved and respected both of these men. And after that, another one of Saul's sons had a short-lived attempt at trying to claim his power, but because God was with David, he eventually came into this throne that God had promised him. All of the tribes of Israel swore their loyalty to David, and he conquered the city of Jerusalem, which would become his capital city. And we see him in this moment of, like, shining glory when he brings the Ark of the Covenant into the city with joy and music and dancing and celebration. And so this is how we get to the start of 2 Samuel 7, when it finally says that the king was settled in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies. After many, many years of fighting and running, David finally had his throne and his rest, just as God had promised him. And I tell you this story, um, not just to set the stage for this important moment that's about to take place, but also so that we can be reminded, as we were in our children's sermon this morning, that God's timing is not always our timing. David was so young when Samuel found him in his father's fields. 
He was so young when he was anointed to inherit a kingdom and a power that was going to be beyond anything that he could have imagined. But it took years for that to manifest. He had to wait for it. He had to struggle, sometimes on a daily basis, to trust that God was going to make good on what he had promised. And we know, based on the many psalms that David wrote, that this wasn't easy especially in those moments when his life was literally in danger. The words that we hear Jesus speaking later, many years later, from the cross were actually first written by David in the wilderness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me, from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. In another psalm, he wrote, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Many of the psalms, if you read through Israel's songbook, are like this. Even for a king, there was pain and there was waiting. Now, there are a lot of ways that we cannot possibly relate to David in our own lives, right? We're not royalty. We don't have a palace. No one's handing us a crown or a scepter and giving us the right to rule. (laughs) That doesn't come anywhere close to real life for us. But we do know what it's like to wait. Even, you know, past the 36 days that it takes to get to Christmas. (laughs) We've waited for relationships to come about. We've waited for marriages and for kids We've waited for healing after diagnoses or cancer treatments or surgeries. We've waited for the callback after that interview and then the next one and then the next one, right? In the silent moments of prayer or in years of longing, we know what it's like to wait. This part of David's story is also part of our story, even though a few of the details are different. (laughs) But David also shows us how to hold on to hope in those times. Because even as he's asking the Lord, how long, God, how long, he still manages to offer prayers of confidence. In one of his psalms, he says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. So David waited, and he prayed, and he finally came into his kingdom and his place of rest. God's timing is not our timing, but he did make good in his own time on his promise to David. The funny thing about us humans (laughs) is that what happens when we finally get what we've been waiting for? Do you know where I'm going with this? It's wonderful for a minute, right? But then what happens? It's on to the next thing, (laughs) exactly. I mean, I remember even as early as like graduating high school, I had worked for four years just on homework and studying and trying to be this perfect 4.0 student because I wanted the scholarships to get into college and I worked so hard and then I finally got this diploma. And I remember having one night of celebrating with my graduating class and one party with my family 
And then it was on to college. <laughs> it was over like that. We were on to the next big thing. I mean, I imagine you've had these kind of experiences, right? The moment you get that job or that promotion, it's like a victory. You know, you've achieved this. But then what's next? You know, what does it take? What's the next step? What do we do now? How do we kind of climb up that ladder? What does it take to get to the next level? And what's the question that people always get after they get married? When are you going to have kids, right? <laughs> it's like, congratulations, you've hit this milestone, now what's your next thing? Um, and then it's a second kid, and maybe a third, or even a fourth, and eventually people start telling you to slow down, but, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you get the picture. What can we move on to? <laughs> right. And there's nothing wrong with this, necessarily, right? This is part of being human. We uh, are on this journey, and we are looking for our next thing even though, honestly, we could probably use a little slowing down every now and then. But we'll see in our story that uh, even David was not immune to this forward motion. You know, as soon as he is in this honored place after all these years of waiting and he's in his palace and all the things that God had promised had come to pass, he's looking for what to do next. So he says to the prophet Nathan, I'm living in a house of cedar, but the ark of God stays in a tent. So David gets it in his mind that he's going to build a temple for God in the city of Jerusalem. That's going to be his next thing. And it's hard to tell David's motives here in this story. <laughs> On the one hand, it was common for kings at the time to build uh, these grand temples to their gods as signs of their own power. Right? It would have signaled to the rest of the nations that they had their god's favor or even this divine right to rule. Having a temple was, in some ways, a status symbol. But on the other hand, David is clearly seeing this discrepancy between his grand palace in Jerusalem and the humbleness and humility of God's ark in a tent. God had done so much for David that he's likely wanting to honor God in return by building this glorious place for God to reside in the city with his people. And he now has the resources as a king to do this. Or it's possible, I suppose, that David was just bored and he was looking for a new project. Um, we honestly have no idea. But in any case, David proposes this temple. And it sounds fine to Nathan. He says, go and do all that you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. Clearly, that had been the case up to this point, right? But then God shows up with a word for Nathan to give to David. And it was unlike anything that any prophet or any king of Israel had heard before. First, God says, what makes you think I have any desire or need for a house to live in? You know, God has never lived in one place, even since he brought his people out from Egypt. Not once has he asked for a permanent house. God is a God who is always moving. So he notes this for David. But then God issues what is probably the most stunning reversal that David could have ever imagined. Because David wants to build God a house. But God says instead, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. 
I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from Saul. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Some theologians call this moment the pivotal moment in Israel's national history. An Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann, says that this is the core foundation for all of Israel's messianic hopes in the years to come. David offered to build God a temple, and instead, God promised to build David a dynasty, (laughs) a kingdom that would last forever. There are a few key things that are happening in this moment that I don't want us to miss. God is taking the initiative in establishing David's legacy. He is making a covenant with one person, which has not been done since the time of Abraham. And the promise that he's making here to David is eternal and unconditional. Any one of those three things by itself is no small thing. Right? But all together, they are extraordinary. God steps up with this monumental promise to David that is entirely of God's own prerogative. David doesn't ask for this. He hasn't done anything to deserve it or to earn it. He's already been given the throne of Israel. Again, entirely by God's choice and not by his doing, not by any merit of his own. This is entirely God's initiative. It is a gift. And he makes this promise to David alone. Years ago, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, God had said to his people, I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And that was the basis for this law of Moses that was given at the time. All of the promises and the blessings that were given to Israel through the law of Moses were communal. They were for all the people. But now, God chooses one person and his descendants to rule. And he says that his love for them is going to be like a father for his child. So intimate and so absolute that it will never break. This kingdom and this relationship will be established forever. Not just through David's lifetime, not just through his son's lifetime, but forever. Always. Unconditionally. That is a huge deal, especially when we think of God's concept of forever. It's a long time. It's a big deal. I mean, can you imagine what David must have been feeling in that moment? Just disbelief, amazement, overwhelm. His immediate response to Nathan's words is to pray. And we can tell how in shock he is by the fact that he says, Oh, Lord God, nine times, and he calls himself his servant ten times in one prayer. Over and over, your servant, your servant, I am your servant. I mean, what else do you do at that point? (laughs) He's in shock. But it also tells us what kind of a king he is. Right? God makes a promise. And immediately David falls on his knees in prayer and gratitude. All he can do is receive it. That's not the posture we would expect of a king to be on his knees. But maybe that's the point. Maybe that's why David ends up being called Israel's greatest king and a man after God's own heart. I mean, because like any other human, he is not immune to the corruption of power, right? And he'll make many, many mistakes 
in his years to come. But unlike Saul's response to the throne, which was power hunger and paranoia about losing what he had, David always comes back to this posture as a servant. He receives God's gifts with open hands, and he clings not to his own power, but to God's faithfulness, even in his mistakes. He is a king who puts himself at the mercy of his true king, and that is what makes him great. And he rules in that way for many years. If you know the rest of this story, you know that there is some irony uh, coming up in the fact that, you know, David was succeeded by his son, Solomon, who did end up building a temple for God in Jerusalem. But it didn't take long after that before David's line was broken. His kingdom split in half, and the rulers that came after in both of those kingdoms had little interest in God or in keeping the law or in being faithful to the people that they served or in being faithful to their God. And eventually, the kingdom of David was overcome by the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians, and then the Persians, and then the Romans. <laughs> Things did not go quite as expected. But all throughout those centuries of occupation and exile, the people of Israel never forgot about God's covenant to David. They never stopped waiting for his kingdom to return because God had made a promise. And eventually, all of their hopes and dreams came to fruition in a child who was born, who was truly the son of God, from the line of David, who came announcing that the kingdom of God is at hand. God's timing is not our timing, but he always fulfills his promises, sometimes well beyond what we could imagine. It may not seem at first glance like we have a lot in common with David, especially in his role as a king. We have no idea what it's like to have that title or that kind of authority. But we can know what it's like to take David's same posture in prayer and in gratitude. We can choose to trust in God even when we are waiting and we are unsure of what's going to happen next. And we can receive what God offers us eternally in the person of Christ. John Goldingay is a professor at Fuller Seminary, and he once wrote, Jesus never talks about our establishing God's kingdom or furthering it or building it or extending it. In the Gospels, the only thing that we do to God's kingdom only things are to wait for it, see it, enter it, seek it, receive it, inherit it, and declare that it has come. That's it. We just receive. There is no authority or crown required, just a promise given of God's favor and God's faithfulness in his kingdom to us as much as it was to David. So may God help us to see and receive this love that he still offers to each and every one of us unconditionally and eternally through this person of his son, Jesus Christ. Amen.